the challenge, the opportunity to connect. The 1960s, a time of imagination and change, a time of anger and fear. The 1960s, a program called Challenge. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Looked at our connections, our divisions, through the lens of faith. Nearly 60 years later, during these challenging times, we'll take a new look at our divisions, our connections, in a new program called Challenge 2.0. Shopping malls have been called cathedrals of consumption and advertisers the acolytes of excess. At no time is that more evident than during the Christmas shopping season. Holiday spending drives 41% of Americans into debt. That behavior, of course, has many critics, but one man in particular has made it his mission to make us recognize that the cost extends well beyond one holiday season, and well beyond the impact on our individual bank accounts. His work, then, is the focus of this edition of Challenge 2.0, Reverend Billy and the Church of Stop Shopping. We are the Church of Stop Shopping, a radical performance community based in New York City. And we're asking you to help us with our work. Our new music, our radio show, our weekly Earth Church service, and our creative activism. What is most important about our work? We exist at an almost perfect intersection of community, art, and activism with a lot of access to the unknown and what some people might call spirit. Please join us in creating and sustaining this wild and imaginative community of change. So as you had a sense, uh, we have two very accomplished guests that we are pleased to share this program with this morning. Reverend Billy uh, of the Church of Stop Shopping and Salvatore D, also of the Church of Stop Shopping. Thank you so much, both of you, for joining us. And you're in New York City right now, correct? Yeah, that's right. Uh, Billy, I understand you just returned from a tour to the United Kingdom from Great Britain. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about that and how that went? Well, I was there about a week, and I had to miss one of our Sunday Earth Church gatherings back here in in the east village we've taken over a storefront a, a, a bank branch ironically and uh, so i had to miss that so savitry and the choir you had your own service with uh without your reverend did you did you have a a cardboard cutout or any evidence of mine <laughs> so so in in england we have a choir in london as well the Stop Shopping Choir of London is about 25 singers now. Um, so if I'm going to be preacher at both churches, I have to take a veggie power jet back and forth. You know, maybe uh, it couldn't be it couldn't be gas powered every time. Um, we had a tour last uh, last uh, late fall uh, with these singers uh, in in England, zigzagging back and forth from London to the climate conference in Glasgow. Mm -hmm. And uh, some of them were in New York and were a part of uh, the Stop Shopping Choir when they lived here. And then they planted the infectious seed in the UK. We had a, a, a series of performances and actions. They worked, they worked me to the ground. I uh, um, Some of the high points 
um, dedicating the Institute of David Graeber. Going to continue David's illustrious uh, work now that he's passed away. Hundreds of people around the around the globe um, involved in a um, well. We paraded around and sang, and and we love David. He's a saint in our church. We saint. We we honor our people that we really want to work with and love by uh, sort of comic sainthoods. Billy, if I can just uh, interrupt for a second, and yes, those that are not familiar uh, with Mr. Graber, tell us a little bit about what he did and what he accomplished and why he was part of the focus of your work. Well, David Graber is a, a radical anthropologist, essentially. Um, I mean, he's referred to as radical. We just think he's telling the plain truth. Um, and he, you know, he's known for his work on debt. He's known for um, initiating the meetings that started Occupy Wall Street. Um, the phrase, uh, the other 99% um, is thought to have come from David. Um, but David was also an activist and we knew him well here in New York City. We were on the street with him, you know, all the time before he moved to London. And he unfortunately died um, two years ago and we all miss him. Uh, his his last book, in which he really goes through um, histor the historical record with an archeologist and, and shows us how limited our imagination is uh, because he points out there have always been other ways of organizing our communities that the nation state democracy as we know it today, the economy we have today, though they seem totally natural and inevitable, were not at all inevitable. Mm -hmm. And they were choices we made along the way. And and in this historical record, what, what we see is the possibility of a future that looks very different. Let me ask you a question, and this relates both to what you're doing in England uh, and have apparently been doing for a while, and then also what you're doing in New York and in this country as well. Uh, and we're going to go back to your foundation in a bit, but it seems that there's been a definite evolution from your confrontation, your... Uh, pulling out a clearer vision of the impact of consumerism to the impact on this planet. Uh, so tell us a little bit more about that and how you came to develop what you now call the Earth Church. We were we were Earth people from the beginning. Uh, we were Earth defenders from the beginning. I would say that issues like sweatshop labor, you know, supporting the chain stores that destroy the mom pa stores and the neighborhoods, uh, sweatshop laborers in, in faraway countries, 14-year-old girls working long hours. That that was an initial, um, I would say that uh, uh, the monoculture, uh, the destruction of community, we, we uh, uh, the, never liked the, the investor structure of the of the chain stores, we never we never liked uh, huge advertising budgets. The middle management people are never around. They're low paid non union people at the counters, uh, and then just the de the details are all the same. They're just churning out stores that are identical. Uh, so we never we we these are some of the issues that hit us hard. Uh, but from the very beginning, we were we were singing to tree sitters on the west coast and. Redwood trees very early. Was that 2003, Sabatry? Mm -hmm. 2004. We always knew 
that uh, the consumer society were uh, based on overproduction and overconsumption was hard on on the the eco bodies of the earth. I mean, I would just say, you know, if you, if you think about resisting consumerism in its broadest sense, you know, you know, we go back to the late '90s and the the, the globalized economy and the, the rise of the ne neoliberal agenda and. The, you know, there's a lot of activism around these issues in this very broad sense. You know, what is globalization? What will it do to us? What will it do to our communities? You know, what does it look like when empire turns in on itself and, and collapses um, internally uh, and creates like what we have right now, which is these uh, super wealthy corporations who are turning incredible profits and a race to the bottom for everybody else. Right. So if, if we think about it from that sort of broad view, you know, consolidation is the enemy of diversity. Right. And that applies um, to ecosystems that applies to neighborhoods that applies to uh, larger economies and, and international communities. You know, consolidation creates monoculture and monoculture is the opposite of life. Right. This is the end of life monoculture. And, and we see again, you can see that in, in every aspect of life. So. You know, our work has broadly resisted consumerism in that sense, you know, and militarism, and they go hand in hand, right? One accompanies the other. And I would say that, you know, as the crisis of the climate, the crisis of, of the, the ecosystem, the eco bodies, as Billy put it, including our own physical bodies um, and other species, you know, threatened with extinction at alarming rates, um, we have addressed it, I would say, more directly as, as earth justice and, and taken on extraction and uh, this sort of invisible chemicalization of, of our environment with things like glyphosate and neonicotinoids. But as Billy said, it's always been about the earth. You know, the distribution economy <laughs> is absolutely fouling the air, fouling the ocean, fouling the soil. I mean, there's just no way around it. Like consumerism destroys the earth, just like war does. Let me ask you a question. And we see in any form of activism, uh, the presentation of what we believe, what we think people need to know uh, to people that might already be considered part of the choir. Uh, but you're taking that a step further and have been taking that a step further. And I'm thinking of an example when you had what I believe was called the Rising Seas uh, protest at a Chase Manhattan bank uh, there in New York. I'd like to take just a moment and show a little video from that. And then I'd like you to talk a little bit more about that. What fueled your urgency on that? And what was the message behind the message that we just saw on screen? Look, JP Morgan Chase is the single largest financier of climate change. I mean, they have consistently defied uh, their own promises, government standards. I mean, they'll do anything. Mm -hmm. They are extracting until someone actually comes and removes them from the extraction. Um, so we go into JP Morgan Chase because 
that's what they're doing. I mean, they're the single largest, most obvious, most sinister target we can think of. And they have hundreds of retail locations, right? So they have exposed themselves to this kind of protest at every corner of, of Manhattan. Um, so uh, we go in there to kind of open up space, right? To say, not just to the workers there, but to Chase. And we know we have on good record that they know about our protests. They're sick of us in their banks. We've been in their banks hundreds of times as have many activists. I guess ultimately like, because they just continue to do what they do, you know, we have to, we have to believe somehow, we have to believe that um, it is unethical to be silent at this point, right? And if, if, if there's an egregious target like Chase, one has to call them out continually, consistently until they stop. Um, there's no sign that they're stopping. There's no sign that this is successful activism in that sense or that it's effective activism mm. in that sense. But I would ask another question, which is like, what, what alternative do we have at this point? You know, where do we find agency? When you said, you know, beliefs, I mean, that's a great question. What do we believe? And how do we live in relation to our own belief system? How do we integrate our beliefs and our actions in the culture that we live in right now? And I think most of us feel this tension. This is where the despair comes from. This is where the feeling of apathy or just um, destitution really comes from for people, which is that our, our beliefs and our values are, are not integrated with our actions because we live in a culture that makes that nearly impossible, right? Chase, for instance, uh, you know, if you are on food stamps in the state of New York, you have to have a relationship with Chase Bank, okay. right? There's no way out of it. So <laughs> all these, these compromises are built into our system. So we go into Chase Bank because we have to, we have to. And other people, you have to also, so join us. I'm wondering, as you develop your approach, Chase Manhattan, various other places, when you do street theater, you'd be able to certainly tell much more accurately how you consider that. Do you find that that's a dimension that can reach people? I mean, I saw in the video and people watching saw the video, there were people smiling. Even some of the people behind the teller cages were smiling, I think, probably in spite of themselves. Uh, do you think we need, tell us a little bit about how that approach evolved, Billy, and then also what lessons you think your work holds for other people that are trying to seek change? Well, first of all, in our rising seas uh, performance inside the Chase Bank, and we've done that, we've been doing this since 2007, um, more or less the same dramatic theory. Uh, we pursue a, an idea, a skit, a story, and perform consistently with it. Uh, our, so our, our communication is couched in a frame. And, and so our communication is rarely straightforward, like, straightforwardly didactic. If it is, that's me. That's the preacher. And even with the preacher, there's a little bit of a um, stop shopping now, children. There's, there's a little bit of a, for New Yorkers at least, I think for a lot of people in Seattle, there'd be a, a bit of humor there. Maybe just give us 30 seconds or so of how you get people's attention. We have a conversation about the setting we're in. And if we have a theme, we discuss our theme. Um, 
One time we went into uh, a Chase Bank and it was right after, well, it was during the California fires, I believe, or the Australian fires. Remember Australia was a, was, was coast to coast on fire and hundreds of millions of animals were dying, not to mention people. And uh, we talked about fire before we went in there. So we, uh, we get the theme going. You might, if, if you, we, we all got fire on our, our iPhones. We put the eye, we all, we had all this fire in the iPhones. Mm-hmm. And so our theme was, uh, you're financing these fires, Chase Bank. You're putting, you're making money. That's the profit. This is a profit center for you. You're, you're financing these. Uh, so I'm, I'm now I'm halfway to preaching here. I'm starting to shout at you, Jeff. That's good. Yeah. You deserve that. You're a sinner. You know, you need to admit that, first of all. People, you're making your money from these fires. Don't you feel a connection deep down inside? Don't you feel that those fires, they're not standalone events? They just don't blossom out of the ground? You know, like that kind of thing. Amen. I think it's, um, you know, when you asked a minute ago about empirical data and 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 how that impacts people or doesn't impact people, I think our job is to take the knowledge, right, and the information and this sort of amazing um, uh, body of work of scientists for decades now about what's happening to the earth, take that and then um what we see happening around us which is like you know an inability to grow food in honduras you Mm -hmm. know creating a migrant crisis um or you know pakistan still 30 percent underwater in october um we take those things which we can see with our own eyes and we bring them together and then we try to find a kind of symbolic language that will open up space so people can actually absorb the information Um, Because what we're up against with consumerism, right, is like this constant barrage of information from our phones, from a billboard, from the television, from the radio. And and, uh, there's a threshold at which we can't absorb anymore. So we create these theatrical moments that open up space. They sort of stop time. Right. And then hopefully some of that that knowledge, that information, that data can sort of spill out into a person in a different way and they can actually take it in. And and also, I'd say it's important to give people permission to have the feelings they have about it, right? That they don't have a rational way to process that. We can't possibly process what's going on with the climate right now. You know, it, it's too much to understand. So. Mm-hmm. I think we're also giving people permission to um, just have an emotion about it. Mm-hmm. Um, which as a human, you understand, like, you know, scientist or not, like, we are driven by our emotions more than we are by our knowledge. There's a uh, saying that the fastest way uh, to link a person's head and their heart is through story. And it seems to me that that's yeah. precisely what you're doing. And I think in fairness, especially since our initial TV audience is going to be Seattle area, uh, you've talked about uh, Chase Bank, which of course is throughout the country, but you've also uh, done demonstrations and confronted uh, some very large corporations that are based in Seattle. I seem yes. to recall that uh, uh, yes. Starbucks and Amazon have been some targets of yours as well. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about that. Well, the Jeff Bezos is, is uh, and Howard Schultz are... Uh, 
classic hates the unions rolling over the world billionaires we we especially uh uh we hunker down and 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 want to protect individual neighborhoods mm-hmm. we've been in the in the in the what is it the pike place in, mm-hmm. in the pike place market market we've been there at the so-called original starbucks um but uh you just you just want to defend what's right in front of you if you can we especially concentrate on downtown uh, New York and the village and the Lower East Side uh, or Brooklyn, just concentrating on a neighborhood that is threatened by yet another uh, um, Starbucks. And uh, with Amazon, we hooked up with Chris Smalls and the Amazon Labor Union uh, at the Staten Island Warehouse. And um, Salvatore identified that very early as as uh, a good partnership. We we uh, recently honored Chris with with uh, sainthood, fabulous sainthood in the Stop Shopping Church. Well, I think uh, that any of these companies, though, if you think about it, right, these are industry leaders, right? Starbucks paved the way for that, you know, retail cluster that 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 cluster model of just like three on every block you know so the minute you even think of a latte you can just open a door and go in and get one i mean (laughs) you know starbucks invented some some retail uh evolution there right and and amazon likewise like the industry leader really inventing a new way of doing business inventing economy um at a different scale in a different place it does not it's not it's you know buy it with one with one button and just like chase i mean these are the largest of their kind the most egregious violators of all rules of you know the 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 labor board like they just don't even care what the national labor board says to them they they just pay the fine if they have to i mean these are egregious egregious companies robber barons of the first order you know wealthy beyond measure and um again like if we don't take them on what what are we doing you know we're just gonna let that roll like is that gonna be okay with all of us do people feel okay about that you know do feel okay about that i don't (laughs) given your focus on the impact of consumerism and concentration of economic power as well as political power uh, when you see billionaires that are funding uh, space programs and with the idea of settling on other planets instead of addressing what's happening here, what strikes your heart? Uh, what emotions, what uh, what thoughts pass through you? Well, Musk and, and, and Bransom from uh, England, Richard Bransom, uh, Musk and, and, of course, Bezos. So those three are the self-styled astronauts. And um, I know that they talk about the planets, inhabiting the planets, the ultimate suburbs. I immediately go back to the way that we measure our, our politics, which is the health of neighborhoods, mm-hmm. where a gift economy exists. People are of service to each other. They're helping each other. When somebody's in need, you know them well enough to... If there's a scream uh, on somebody's porch, you run over, uh, take care of each other's kids, drop a key off at the bodega and say, my, my cousin's coming in two weeks. She, she's got bangs. Her name's Eleanor. 
uh, you know, the, the, uh, the complexity and elasticity and uh, fun of, of a lively, healthy neighborhood. Um, going out to the planets is the destruction of the neighborhood here. And that is we, we, with, with Branson, Musk, and, and Bezos, with the, with the economy that they have driven, mm-hmm. the, uh, they, have, they have hurt neighborhoods. Yeah, so, and just ask an African American what they think about it. Ask like a person who's lived essentially like in an oppressed state in this country, you know, their whole life. What does that look like to what does Elon Musk look like to a 67-year-old African American woman in the United States, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, it just seems like this frivolous, whimsical, outrageous waste of resource. When there are people, you know, this year, 37% of the world's population is facing food insecurity, 37%. You know, that could be solved with the $50 billion that Elon Musk just spent on Twitter. You know what I'm saying? Like the, it, and it, I don't want to just like say, oh, it could all be solved with a redistribution of wealth. I mean, it might be that simple, but there are larger things at work there, which is that like these white guys are allowed to like act like this, like little children with their toys while there are people literally unable to eat, you know? And it's just shocking that we have allowed for that and normalized that. And so when you ask me directly, how does that strike me? It strikes me as unfair. It strikes me as unjust. It strikes me as wrong, you know? And I don't think I'm alone in that feeling. <laughs> and, you know, there is something exciting about space, of course, you know, and they can justify it any way they want saying like, oh, we're gonna need to do this. We need a way out because of climate change. Well, hey, maybe we should solve the problems we have here before we create them in another place. Mm-hmm. You know, that's Amen. what I would say. Amen. Well, I would say first and foremost, we hope that you're going to be around both evolving your strategies and doing the very creative work that you've been doing uh, and the advocacy work. And I thank you both very much for being a part of this program. And we thank all of you for watching this edition of Challenge 2.0 and hope you'll join us as we continue this conversation in our next episode next week. Thank you very much.